According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. You may join me, if you will, in the book of Jeremiah. You're probably already there. Doug asked you to turn there for uh, verses 1 and 2. The song gets worse in verse 3. Yes, he got to start rhyming lyrics with Zedekiah and Jehoiakim. Some of these names are pretty tough for songwriters. Well, let's start with a word of prayer. Thank the Father for what he's blessed us with, 66 weeks in Isaiah, and now 52 weeks in front of us for the book of Jeremiah. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day. We thank you for this new series. And Father, we're rejoicing over uh, the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved for the doctrine, for the principles, for the promises, for uh, the lessons that we are going to learn in this coming book. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. His message is not a happy message. Uh, But Father, uh, we find ourselves living in times and we wonder the direction our nation is headed. And if we, in fact, have difficult days in front of us, then there may be no better book of all the 66 books of Scripture than, uh, than Jeremiah for uh, believers of our generation. So we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding and to equip us from the truth of your word, Father. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth. Why weren't they in Jerusalem? In the land of Benjamin. Why didn't they serve in the temple? Who are these guys? To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. There was a good guy. The son of Ammon. There was a bad guy. King of Judah in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, another bad guy. And for, for example, let me just save you some time. Josiah is the last good king there is. All right. Everyone that, fo- everyone that follows is worse than the one before. It's downhill from here, okay? Just so you know. Came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. His ministry actually goes longer than that, but he is uh, in a different phase of things after Jerusalem falls. He will continue to live beyond the fall of Jerusalem. He'll go down to Egypt. He probably will die in Egypt as far as we know. But we have described here a very unhappy summary of what is the most successful ministry I can think of in the Old Testament, yet what is the most unsuccessful ministry I can think of in the Old Testament at the same time. As man looks at it, he was a failure. A miserable failure for more than 40 years. No one ever listened to him. No one paid attention. He bore no fruit whatsoever. But as far as God keeps track of things, we have one of the most successful prophets of all. And the, the depths of the prophecies that he records, prophecies that Daniel was learning from during the exile, during the captivity, prophecies that we've studied at great length, including the New Covenant. If you spend time in the New Covenant, that means you spend time in Jeremiah and the principles that come here. And so... Uh, Just understand it for what it is. The book that follows is Lamentations, often called the Lamentations of Jeremiah. But don't let that message confuse you. Don't think for a minute, because Lamentations is the Lamentations of Jeremiah, that this book is somehow the the happy thoughts of Jeremiah, because it's not. 
All right, there are no happy, well, there are some happy thoughts scattered throughout the book. But by and large, um, Jeremiah is delivering the what-if consequences for what Isaiah was giving. All right, Isaiah was giving the repent or else, and uh, by the time Jeremiah is preaching, he does preach repent, but he knows it's not going to happen. And the or else is going to happen. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Uh, it, Jerusalem is going into captivity. The temple will be destroyed. The Davidic throne, which is an eternal throne, the Davidic throne is going to be vacated. And the, uh, the fulfillment of these things is not because God hates them, it's because God loves them. And it's not because God is not fulfilling his promises, it's because God is fulfilling every promise, including the promise to curse them for their defiance of the word of God. And we're going to see this chapter by chapter by chapter for 52 chapters. Now it helps that we have the date on this, and we'll begin with the time frame. Chapter 1 begins with the time frame and the call of the prophet Jeremiah. His call comes in verses 4 and following, and we'll get to those here in a moment, because it came very young. We don't know how young he is when he complains that he's a youth. And when the Lord says, don't complain because you're a youth. All right, in verse 6, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a, a youth. God doesn't care about that. He knows how old Jeremiah is because God has actually placed an appointment on him while he was still in utero. He was still in the womb when he was called to prophetic office. And so he's not at all concerned with how young the boy Jeremiah might be. So we'll deal with that here in a moment. Jeremiah was of priestly lineage. I don't believe he ever served as a priest. I don't think he was old enough to serve as a priest. They generally didn't start their priestly service till the age of 30, sometimes the age of 20 if, if they were in a, a time of national difficulty. But like Ezekiel, Ezekiel never served as a priest. He was of a priestly family, and uh, he was called into captivity with a destroyed temple. Uh, Ezekiel never got to serve as a priest, but he served as a mighty prophet. Same thing with Jeremiah. Never served as a priest. I don't think he ever would have served as a priest, even had, had the temple still been there when, when Jeremiah turned 30. I think um, because his lineage was of the branch that was cursed. His lineage was of the branch of, of, of Eli, where the, the discipline was coming and where they were removed from priestly service. And so even though he was a priestly lineage, he came from a branch that was under judgment since the days of, of Levi. Uh, or of Eli. And I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but I would encourage you to do some homework and read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, and you'll learn that Eli was a piece of work and his two boys were even worse. All right, that Hophni and Phinehas, in, in fact, uh, they would die in uh, the sin of the death and Eli would fall off his donkey. And it was just, it was a, a tragic line. They served in Shiloh and that's significant. They served in Shiloh. Jeremiah will have some Shiloh messages in the process of delivering this book. And we don't want to lose sight of that. When he's preaching Shiloh, he's preaching some of his own family lineage, his own family heritage in, uh, in promises of God. But um, it's, that becomes a, a study beyond our, our scope here today. This line, by the way, was briefly blessed by Ahimelech and by Abiathar's service to King David. David was on the run, and, and uh, some of these priests bailed him out. He comes to Nob, and he's able to eat some of the bread, and he's able to eat and, uh, and receive a sword. He gets Goliath's sword, and while uh, David is on the run, he's blessed by this priest. And uh, Abiathar uh, even will serve David faithfully uh, for the rest of David's days. And so there's a bit of grace involved there when you read in 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. Uh, in a couple of generations, even though their line was under a curse, even though they were not able to serve as priests, they served King David. And in fact, Abiathar was put in priestly office, even though he really shouldn't have been. 
He served as a faithful priest during the days of David. It's not until Solomon takes the throne then that uh, Abiathar is dismissed. And I guess we'll, I'll grab that reference. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we have the dismissal of Abiathar. Problem was, Abiathar chose the wrong side, and Abiathar was caught up in Adonijah's uh, attempt to claim the throne. And uh, Zadok was the priest who stayed faithful and sided with Bathsheba and with Solomon for Solomon ascending to the throne. But in 1 Kings 2, we have the dismissal of, uh, of uh, uh, Abiathar in verses uh, 26 and 27. So to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And so there's a lot of scripture from back in chapter 1 Samuel 2 that comes up here in 1 Kings 2 that comes up later. And that has far more depth than our current format allows us to go into in the geography of Anathoth and the priestly service there. King Josiah, he was the last good king and he was also a very young king. He came to the throne at the age of eight, eight years old when he became king. His dad only reigned for two years. Uh, His dad was wicked. Manasseh was wicked, his grandfather. So we had two wicked kings before we finally get to an eight-year-old who is humble before the Lord. And King Josiah, I can read a little bit of this from 2 Chronicles 34. King Josiah experienced significant events in his eighth year, his twelfth year, and in the thirteenth year of his reign, or the eighteenth year of his reign, all right? And those three significant events span the time frame here for the book of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was called during the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. So the 8-year-old became king, and then when he turns 21 in the 13th year of his reign, this is when, I think, another 8-year-old was called to service. I think that the boy, Jeremiah, began his prophetic career uh, at that period of time. Uh, Again, a lot of this is going to have to go as homework. But in 2 Chronicles 34, we start to find what happens here with the boy king and how he turns positive to the word of God and how he begins to grow and how it is that he has a high priest named Hilkiah that's going to serve him and tutor him and bless him in, uh, in that growth. For, uh, 2 Chronicles 34. I don't know why I always struggle to find Chronicles. Second Chronicles 30. Obviously, we need to turn there more often so that we can find it. Second Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And that's extraordinary since Amon, his father, was wicked, and Manasseh, his grandfather, was even more wicked. All right, but Manasseh had a repentance at the end of his life, and I wonder if that had an impact here on the eight-year-old grandson, which would have been a six-year-old grandson, when, uh, when Manasseh died. Because like I say, Ammon only reigned for two years. And then Josiah, the eight-year-old, took the throne. Then it goes on to say, in the eighth year of his reign, at 16, while he was still a youth, at 16, when a lot of other 16-year-olds get into trouble, 
Josiah began to seek the God of his father David, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down, also the Asherim. And he's got some great things that he's doing here. And what we're going to learn in Jeremiah is the king is having a great revival, and his people, not so much. All right, the people would follow, but only so far as they had to. The people still had a lot of wickedness in their soul, and Jeremiah is going to call them on that. He's going to nail them for that. And, uh, and different things here. Down to verse 8, the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. The temple had come into some terrible disrepair. As you might expect, during Manasseh's 55-year reign, uh, the temple didn't get a lot of attention. And they came to Hilkiah, the high priest. By the way, it's not the same Hilkiah as the father of Jeremiah. All right, Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah, a priest not eligible to serve. And this Hilkiah was the high priest who was serving in uh, in the temple and he's the one that becomes the tutor to uh to the king anyway and this is where they find deuteronomy they find a copy of the law and uh, look what i found (laughs) we find in verse 14 when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the lord hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the lord given by moses and it may have been the entire torah but as a minimum it was Deuteronomy. I believe it was Deuteronomy. They found the Deuteronomy scroll that had been missing for centuries. And it's found now in the time of good King Josiah. All right. By the way, Deuteronomy is going to be a powerful influence on the theology of Jeremiah. There is so much of Deuteronomy that comes out in the 52 chapters of Jeremiah. And I find that to be uh, significant of this event here. All right. So there's the background. Now, According to the Chronicles record, though, Jeremiah is never once is he involved in Josiah's events until Josiah's very death. And at Josiah's funeral, Jeremiah will chant a lamentation. And we read that in 2 Chronicles 35, 25. And that is the only personal connection that we have between Jeremiah and Josiah. This this prophet who's going to serve multiple kings, he's called during the reign of the last good king, and yet he will never, as far as we know, come face to face with him or minister to him or encourage him or have any kind of relationship there at all so far as we know scripture does not record any that the first contact between jeremiah and josiah is at josiah's funeral all right where jeremiah chants his lament now since we finished an isaiah ministry or an isaiah book study last week it's probably useful to uh, distinguish the two they're about 100 years apart between isaiah and jeremiah as far as that goes and they had, I think, they had virtually opposite ministries. Uh, they served multiple kings, but uh, in Isaiah's case, the kings all got better and better and better in the sense of really Ahaz was only the, the only real bad king that Isaiah had to deal with. Uh, Uzziah was all right for the most part and so forth. Jotham was okay for the most part. Um, uh, Ahaz, of course, had a problem. He wouldn't ask for a prophecy and there were issues there. But Hezekiah, Hezekiah was great. Hezekiah was the greatest king since David and the greatest king until Josiah. And, and the tandem between Isaiah and, and Hezekiah was, was marvelous. However, 
So that's kind of the direction Isaiah's ministry went. He got a better king and a better king and a better king and got to close with the best king of all, got to close with, with Hezekiah. Following Hezekiah's death, though, came the very dark reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. And uh, that's the gap in between Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so then the final good king, Josiah, is where uh, Jeremiah gets called. So King Josiah then is the first and best king for the prophet Jeremiah, and it's all downhill from there. It's all downhill. He's called during that great king's reign, but as far as we know, he never meets him. When he finally meets a king, it's the wicked king Jehoiakim, and, uh, and he's in trouble. <laughs> Jehoiakim wants to kill him. All right. And he never has that opportunity. It's almost like, uh, you know, the, the president that I enlisted, uh, I never got to vote for him. I was never old enough to vote for him, but I enlisted in the army under President Ronald Reagan. And I thought, wow. And then we've had a chain of presidents since then. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> it's like Jeremiah. You get called in the reign of Josiah and then, man, downhill from there. I recommend a chart. I put it on Facebook the other day. If you want to copy that chart, just shoot me an email or download it off Facebook. Uh, it comes from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And so if you have that, you'll find it at 2 Kings 23. Uh, but the last five kings of Judah, it's a useful chart to keep in mind in case you can't keep Je- Jehoiakim straight from Jehoiachin or, or um, Josiah and some of these guys, Zedekiah. There's the last five kings, Josiah, Jehoahaz for his only three months, Jehoiakim for 11 years, go down to Jehoiakim's son for uh, Jehoiachin, but there again, it's only three months, and then come back up and to the right for the uncle there, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah reigns for 11 years, and he's the king that gets carried away to Babylon with the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? Uh, Jehoiachin gets carried away to Babylon as well, but he gets carried away before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's going to get carried away with Ezekiel. He gets carried away in the 597 deportation. Basically, there's three deportations. 605 with with Daniel, 597 with Ezekiel, and then 586 with everybody when the whole city is destroyed and the the last of the captivity takes place. So uh, Jehoiachin in the Ezekiel deportation of 597, and then Zedekiah was the very last one. By the way, which one of those is the line of Christ? It's not Zedekiah. No, it is not Zedekiah. It is Jehoiachin, all right? And we'll talk about that too because that line gets cursed. And, and there's a prophecy about Jeconiah that no son of Jeconiah can sit on the throne, all right? And it's a prophecy that seems to contradict the other prophecy that says the son of David has to sit on the throne forever. And we understand that God solves his own conundrum when he has the virgin-born Jesus Christ, who is not a physical son of Jeconiah, but is a legal son and heir of Jeconiah. And we've got some great details coming up for all of that. But it's taught by the prophet Jeremiah, by a prophet who should have been a priest, who couldn't serve as a priest because his line was cursed. All right, And it's, it's an amazing realm to think of how God prepared for the call of the prophet Jeremiah centuries ahead of time through his entire lineage in uh, in that respect so king josiah was the first and best king that the prophet jeremiah served under the successors to josiah went from bad to worse after zedekiah the throne of david was vacated it's still vacated to this day you understand that it is a vacated throne and it has not been reseated when zerubbabel came back from the captivity he was entitled to the throne but he never claimed it 
He never claimed it. He, he served as a Persian governor, I think, in complete humility. He did not lay claim to the throne of David, even though he was entitled to it. Jesus didn't claim the throne of David in first advent. He was entitled to it, but he was waiting for his father to seat him there. And so he didn't claim it in first advent. To this day, the throne of David is vacant, and it will remain vacant until the second advent of Jesus Christ. Then and only then will the throne of David, the vacated throne of David, be reseated. Like the first king he served under, Jeremiah began his ministry as a youth. And, you know, was he eight years old? Was he 16 years old? We saw uh, Josiah became king at eight, but when he was 16, he began his reforms. He began to, um, to uh, remove the idolatry from his nation. He began to remodel the temple that found Deuteronomy during that time. So maybe Jeremiah also was an eight-year-old. We don't know his exact age. We know that he lives, he ministers for 40, nearly 50 years. So he, he's got to start young at that point. But the youth isn't really an issue because God says, I know how young you are. He says, and besides, in utero is when you began your, pulpit, your uh, prophetic office. He said, while you were in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, in other words, while I was forming you in the womb, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. And God says, don't worry about that. I'm in charge of this. (laughs) Do not say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, you see how it switched there to the first person? Well, even back to verse four, it's the first person. There's a lot of autobiography in this book. We're going to know more about Jeremiah when we're done than we know about any other prophet in the Old Testament. So the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day, again, over the nations. He's going to be an international prophet, not just a prophet to the Jewish people, to the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so he's got four items of destruction and two items of of building. His ministry is rather destructive and constructive, but it's double destructive, even while uh, it does have a construction at the end of it. Yahweh's word is in his mouth and he has assigned an international confrontational mission. You know, a lot of times we think of Jeremiah as the the prophet who was inside Jerusalem when Jerusalem fell. And yes, that's true. He was the prophet inside Jerusalem when Jerusalem fell. And he was spared in the midst of that destruction. But prior to that, I think prior to that and even perhaps after that, He had foreign travels that he was engaged in, and he spoke to neighboring nations. God was not about to put his covenant people on ice without telling the Gentile people what they had in store for them. (laughs) All right? And because if, if God will deal with his own people this way, how do the Gentiles think they rate? How do the Gentiles think God's going to deal with them? And the illustration is, look, if this is how I deal with my people you people are also going to come under the judgment function of the justice of God. And we'll see that as well. It was mentioned in verse 10. It was mentioned in verse 5, his uh, appointment to the nations. 
He was really the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. In, in a lot of ways, the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament was the prophet Jeremiah. Interesting that he comes from Benjamin. Well, it's Levi, but he comes from the territory of Benjamin, from Anathoth and Benjamin, like the Apostle Paul was from Benjamin. I won't turn there because, uh, again, it's our format. We're kind of in a rush. But chapter 25, we're going to see he's going to take a tour of these nations. He's going to have a cup of wine that he takes with him. He's going to force those kings to drink the cup of wine while he teaches them the doctrine. And then the message is in chapters 46 through 51. By the way, if you like chronological messages, you're going to hate Jeremiah. (laughs) The chapters are not in order. All right, they're grouped by subject matter in large respects. Don't be surprised if we get to a particular chapter and we're going to back up 40 years. All right, and uh, several times we're going to have messages that come during the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, but those messages get scattered throughout the the book in various chapters. So um, the, the the book was not compiled in a sequence. It was compiled topically. It was compiled thematically. And the first bulk of it is him chewing out uh, uh, Jerusalem or Judah. And then the final bit of it is him chewing out the Gentiles. But some of that came earlier in his career. All right. Jeremiah has shown two visions and given one hard message to deliver to the kings of Judah. This is in his call. This is the very first word he's ever commanded to give. And as far as we know, he's, he's an eight-year-old little boy. All right, or 12 or 16 or some point. But he's not, he's not of marriageable age. He's not of, of military service age. He's called a nutliar. He's called a youth, similar to King Josiah, similar to Daniel and, and the boys that are take, uh, Shadrach and those guys taken off into captivity. They're called youths. But here in verses 11 through 19, he's given two visions and he's given one hard message to deliver. And if you think about a seminary training or you think about a proving ground, (laughs) you think about your early messages (laughs) and ask yourself, you know, uh, could you have given the tough messages right right off the bat? Could message number one have been standing in front of the President of the United States and giving him the whatnot? You know, that's a little rough to start your career with. But Jeremiah did, as, as far as we understand it here. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, "Um, I see a rod of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, well done, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. There it is, two verses, tiny little message, and yet a depth of application to be made, and and really a, a principle that you and I can cling to constantly in, uh, in our application here. All right? What do you see? What do you see, Jeremiah? God not only sent the vision, but God double-checked to make sure that Jeremiah saw what he was supposed to see. And think about that. You know, think about how faithful God is in this regard. You know, imagine if uh, the pastor preached a sermon and then called you up the next day and said, uh, what did you hear yesterday? All right. And interestingly enough, the, uh, uh, if, if, if a pastor was to do such a thing, I could imagine that some random church member he called the next day might uh, have heard something different. <laughs> might, have, might have heard something that was not quite exactly on target with, with what was said. All right. And God doesn't uh, 
operate that way. Not with Jeremiah. I don't think he does that way with any of his prophets. We've got similar things with, with Ezekiel. When he gives visions to Ezekiel and says, what do you see, Ezekiel? Oh, uh, I see a plumb line. Very well. You've seen a plumb line. Here's what it means. And, and, and God will follow up with these prophets on what he sees to make sure that he not only understands what it is he sees, but the doctrinal significance behind it. God was so cautious with his prophets to make sure that this is what they saw and what they were dealing with. He makes sure that Jeremiah sees what he's supposed to see and understands what he's supposed to understand. And these are the principles that I think we can glean and, and draw with our own application. When we start a Bible class in prayer and we ask the Father, Father, show me what it is that I'm supposed to see. Help me to understand what I need on this day for my application. And this is the, the glorious way in which the Holy Spirit communicates to a hundred different people in a hundred different ways, even though all hundred are listening to the same one-hour message in some respects. And, and you get a, you got uh, older believers that, that, got, you know, that were saved in the, uh, in, in the 1940s, and you've got younger believers that just got saved in the last couple of months. All right, and you've got, you got maturity statuses everywhere in between there on a full spectrum of, of growth levels. And yet the Holy Spirit will communicate to each hungry believer. If you are hungry for the Word of God, He will feed you. And you will see what He wants you to see. And He'll make sure you see it. You will hear what He wants you to hear. And He'll make sure you hear it. And He will even have a follow-up. Now His follow-up won't be verbal and prophetic like, Isaiah, like Jeremiah gets here. The follow-up is going to be the testing you face in your life in the coming weeks and months. The, the follow-up is going to be, what did you see in Bible class? Because here's your test to make application. And so we have the, uh, the principles here. And in some cases, uh, you don't actually gain the full significance until the test hits. And then the test hits and you get slapped upside the head and you go, oh, okay, that's what that was about. You know, I, I really liked it when he was preaching on forgiveness and all that, but wait a minute. Now I'm, I've got this challenge to forgive this. I don't want to forgive this person, right? I don't, I mean, they, they stabbed me in the back. They betrayed me. This is, I, I can't forgive that. But I'm being asked to obey the scriptures that God has taught me. And right now the test I'm faced with is, I mean, it's just, it's undeniable. It is, it, is, it is haunting my prayers, it's haunting my dreams, it's haunting my, my, my workplace, it's haunting what, or wherever the, the capacity is for, for, or wherever the venue is for forgiveness. Um, and and it's like, it's, like it, it's almost as sharp as if the pastor was calling me on the phone and saying, hey, did you hear that forgiveness sermon? All right, but see, the pastor doesn't have to do that because the Holy Spirit does that. He's inside of each one of us and he brings to our remembrance the word of God that's gone forth. And so we get the little reminders. Uh, and, uh, you know, what do you see, Jeremiah? <laughs> right? And we're faced with a test, and the Holy Spirit convicts us and says, yeah, what do you see there, Bob, Pastor Bob? You know, you preached it. You going to live it now? All right. You going to make the application? And so Jeremiah has to be honest. He says, you know what? I, 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 see, uh, I see a rod of an almond tree. Okay? And at this point, you can't lie to the Lord. You can't tell them what you want it to be. You can't act like, oh, well, I saw this and I think it means that. 
Because the very Lord that sent you the prophecy is the Lord that's, that's reviewing what it is you saw. That's why hermeneutics is always about what the intent was of the one who gave the message. What did he mean when he said it? It's not what do you think it means or what do you want it to mean? I see the rod of an almond tree. Now there's a play on words here. This is why you have to uh, do the exegesis. And that's why you've got to do the word studies. And that's why uh, you might not, if you're just reading English, you think, well, almond tree, okay. And watching over my word to perform it, okay. What's the big deal? But the, the noun for almond tree is the, is the verb for watching over. And they're connected. And you think, how in the world can almond tree be connected to watching over? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it does in Hebrew. All right. And so it can make sense to us too. The almond rod. I don't do a lot of exegesis in Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's not a, a format for that, but at least here we have to. So we don't miss the point of the, of the vision. The almond rod is called a shockade. Shockade, S-H-A-Q-E-D, shockade. And uh, we won't turn there, but in uh, Numbers 17, right? Aaron had a rod that budded. And that was the sign that he was the, the high priest, that he was speaking on behalf of the Lord. And the rod that budded became the, the testimony. And this budding rod, what was it budding with? It was budding with almonds. And the almond buds, uh, we had the same vocabulary there. The shockade in Numbers 17.8 that we have here is the shockade. And so they kept that. They kept that rod that budded. They put it in the Ark of the Covenant, the, the greatest refrigerator in the history of mankind. I mean, you could put, uh, it would preserve this thing for centuries well this principle though indicates that god is going to watch over his word it is something that he's watching over and the verb to watch over is shakad s-h-a-q-a-d shakad and so the vowel pointing is slightly different and the the uh we end up with a verb instead of a noun at that point with shakad strong's numbers by the way 8247 for the noun and 8245 for the verb and so the verb to watch over is a very precise verb too, by the way. It's a verb that we find in Jeremiah 31. We find it in the chapter for the new covenant. We'll have it coming up as we, uh, as we look at what God watches over. God has a lot more caution and care for his word than most of us uh, have. But God is watching over everything. And in Jeremiah 31, 28, he says, well, verse 27 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. He says he's putting these two uh, kingdoms into the ground. I'm going to sow them. But if he sows them, he can also reap the harvest. As I have watched over them, this is our verb, shakad, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy. Those sound familiar? This is the ministry of Jeremiah he's describing here. And it's what God himself is doing. As well as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Those were also the verbs that, that Jeremiah is expected to fulfill in his prophetic ministry. And so in those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It really bugged him that that became a proverb in, in, uh, in Judah. It was a rotten proverb. It was a lie from the pit of hell. The false prophets were promoting it. Jeremiah was speaking against it, and God himself was speaking against it. 
Anyway, there's a whole doctrine of sour grapes. Then it's followed with, but behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And some of the deepest scriptures we have anywhere in the Bible is right here in the, in the days are coming, saith the Lord, the new covenant promise through Jeremiah to, uh, to the house of Israel. So God is watching over his word. The verb is also used in Psalm 127, unless the uh, Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who builds it. Right? Are we familiar with Psalm 127? I could quote it by memory if I had a talent for Scripture memory. Here it is, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman... Who's that? That's our shawkad guy. He shawkads in vain. He keeps awake in vain. And of all the different verbs there are for being watchful or being on the alert or being on guard duty or watching over something, this verb speaks of staying awake. <laughs> you want to remain awakeful. If you're not wakeful, you'll never be watchful. If you're not awake, you'll never be alert. So the almond rod is what teaches this. The shockade teaches that God, shockade, watches over His Word. That God always stays on the alert. That God is not negligent about His Word. We get negligent of His Word all the time. But God never gets negligent about His Word. And that includes their captivity for 70 years in Babylon. He has to send them into captivity because otherwise He would be negligent to His own Word. To His own promise to discipline rebellion with captivity. You know, you can't have all of these warning prophets, these or else, or else, or else prophets, if there's no or else, right? There has to be a prophet Jeremiah, otherwise Isaiah was a liar. Jonah was a liar until Nahum says, all right, here's the, here's the or else. Isaiah was a liar until Jeremiah says, all right, now here's the or else. All of those earlier prophets with the repent or else message, Jeremiah is now giving the or else message. They're going into captivity. They, are, they will be destroyed as a nation. They will have 70 years of, of dispersion as a non-nation scattered within Babylon. And we have the principle here. Also, it's interesting to note, there was a nickname for the almond tree. It was nicknamed the awake tree. Not only the etymology of the name, but how did it get that name? Why was it called the awake tree? Why were almonds called shekads anyway? Because it was the first tree in the year to wake up. It was the first tree every spring to bud and to bear fruit. It woke up before any of the other trees and said, hey, I guess winter's over. It maybe, I don't know, was it the groundhog tree of the, of the, of the uh, Palestinian winter? Who knows? But that was its name, the awake tree, because in Palestine it is the first tree in the year to bud and bear fruit. Its blooms precede its leaves as the tree bursts into blossom in late January. And so it starts blossoming. You start seeing these flowers and you go, wow, almonds are on the way. And it was something watchful to you could watch out for it. And look at that. Better than Punxsutawney Phil and say, hey, look at that. Spring is, spring is coming. Spring is, uh, is coming upon us. Then we get to the tilting pot. The tilting pot. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north or tilting from the north. 
And the Lord said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on the inhabitants of the land. And it's coming, and this is the direction it's coming from. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And man, here is a, here's a passage we've got to stop and spend some serious time with in a format different from this one, all right? Because we have short-term prophecies related to Babylon, but we also have tribulational prophecies related to eschatology, the end times, related to all the families of the earth. Anyway, fulfilled in the days of Babylon, but fulfilled ultimately in, uh, in the coming tribulation. The families of the kingdoms of the north declared the Lord. Why does it come from the north? What's wrong with south, right? No, the north, okay? And north has significance not only in the human realm, but in the angelic realm. Satan lusted after the seat in the recesses of the north. And the whole principle here gets into the Hebrew of Zaphon and even the, the name of Zephaniah. And why was the message of Zephaniah so significant? Contemporary, by the way, with Jeremiah. All right. Um, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls around about and against all the cities of Judah. They're going to come and they're going to have dominion. The Gentiles are going to render judgment against the Jewish people. The covenant nation, the ones who were supposed to be judging the Gentiles, it's turned around on its head. It's upside down. The Jews are going to come under Gentile judgment, under Gentile dominion, under Gentile, the thumb of the Gentiles. To this day, the Jewish people are under a Gentile thumb. To this day, the Jewish people are not. Yes, there's a Jewish state in in Israel, but they are not free of Gentile uh, interference, Gentile influence, dependent upon Gentile dollars and uh, assistance in different aspects. To this day, and, and it will be the case until Jesus Christ returns. They will be under the, the times of the Gentiles are not yet complete, we're told in the Gospel of Luke. The tilting pot indicates the outpouring of judgment is now inevitable. And I like tilting instead of facing. It's just a, a little uh, vividness to the language. You know, pots it, it tend to be symmetrical and tend to be rather... You know, what direction is it facing, unless there's artwork on the side or something. But if it's tipping, <laughs> then it's definitely tipping in a direction. Okay? And I don't need to tip a pot over in front of you. You can envision this in your, in your mind's eyes. you got a pot. The pot is full of boiling whatever, soup, water, liquid, whatever. It's a boiling pot. And it's fine if it's just sitting there, boiling, all right, you don't want to boil over, but if it's just sitting there, it's fine. But if it starts to tip, what side of that pot do you want to be on? <laughs> you want to be on the, the tipping side or the, you know, the side is tipping to or the side is tipping from? Because, uh, you know, if you're on the wrong side of that tipping pot, the, the, the boiling soup or whatever is, is, is hitting you. All right, it's hitting you. And as it starts to tip, it reaches that tipping point. Uh, is, is there any turning back? If it's tipping over, you know, gravity works every time. It's, it's uh, again, testimony to God's faithfulness. As this pot is tipped, as it's tipped, where's that boiling water going? It's going somewhere. 
and and it's not you know the pot doesn't decide to change its mind and not tip itself it's done tipped it's, it's poured forth all right so a lot of this is wrath imagery we will have it in the in the tribulation with bowls the uh the uh, seals and trumpets and bowls so when the bowls get poured out we have we have gra- we have the wrath of god being applied all right, and now we have the inevitability of the, uh, of the issue here. And so I will pronounce my judgment on them. See, these Gentile thrones, they're just the tools. God's the one that's doing this. I will pronounce my judgment on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Isaiah warned them, but during the lifetime and during the reign of Manasseh, they crossed the tipping point and there was no turning back. With, with the reign of Manasseh and the idolatry of Judah, there was no turning back. And even a good king, Josiah, couldn't stop the inevitability of the Babylonian captivity. Now gird up your loins. The vision now gets personal. <laughs> All right, The content is what it is, but now... The admonishment to Jeremiah himself, gird up your loins, Jeremiah, and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. You know how pointed that gets? For any pastor, any Bible teacher, any messenger, if God has given you a message to give to a flock and you fail to give that message to the flock, look out. Because the one who commissioned you with that message holds you accountable to deliver that message. And he says, do not be dismayed. You know, here's the thing. If you, if, you don't, if you fear man instead of fearing the Lord, he will teach you the fear of the Lord. He will, he will give you a reverence before him. That's why it says in 1 Peter, he who speaks, speaks as uttering the, utter, the oracles of God, the utterances of God. It is a fearsome thing to be a minister of the word of God. So if you are dismayed by them, I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron. And this eight-year-old boy may not seem like it. <laughs> he may not feel like he's a pillar of iron. But God's telling him that's what he is. And that's what he's made him to be. And, and as far as we see it here, he responds. He accepts the call. He moves on into chapter 2, having embraced the call, having accepted the call. I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, to the people of the land. They will fight against you. <laughs> Here's an ordination message. Here, you're at the start of your ministry. And you're told on day one, they will not like it. They will not respond. They will, they will be hostile to everything you ever do. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so here's the call of Jeremiah. This is, this is vivid. This is a, a beautiful thing. I enjoy this quite a bit. Now we're going to see in several chapters... The fulfillment of this. We're going to see Babylon's conquest of Jerusalem. We're going to see it in, in not just 39. We'll see it in 52. We'll see it, in, we'll see it in, in a lot of chapters. He's going to come back again and again and again to the fall of Jerusalem. 
But the conquest fulfills this prophecy almost word for word. The language of thrones being established at the gates. The language of what happens when they capture the city. You do not want to be in a city that gets captured. Okay? Ever. Not not in the ancient world. Not in the modern world. Not today. Alright? We don't want to be... I mean, we've been so blessed to have wars on other lands, not our land. Well, as it comes to our land, we're going to face consequences. As the war comes here, and what happens when we start losing battles here, when the war comes here, and we face the consequences? Let me give you a preview here of Jeremiah 39. I'm actually ahead of pace. I could have slowed down and done some more with the earlier slides. And we still might. We might, we might go back and cover some of that international ministry that Jeremiah is going to have. I think it would be useful to consider... Uh, moving forward. But in Jeremiah 39, when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city wall was breached. You know, a siege isn't fun, and two years of a siege is not fun. And, you know, when do you run out of food? And when do you start eating things you don't want to be eating? All right? And people. I mean, the cannibalism. And I mean, it's just, it is, it is. There's going to be some Sundays you don't want to go to Luby's when you get done with a, a Jeremiah message. All right? I'm just telling you now, the next 52 Sundays, some of them won't be pleasant. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came in and sat down at the middle gate. Nurgle, Sarezer, Samgar, Nebu. Sarsakim, he's the Rabsaris. Nurgle, Sarezer, he's the Rab Mag. And all the rest of the officials of the king of Babylon. And some of the, these guys we're familiar with because of studies in the book of Daniel. All right? And, and, and it's amazing what God did. Some of these guys are friends of Daniel. <laughs> some of these guys, Daniel found favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar and in the eyes of his associates. Daniel was promoted. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted. Amazing things happened with those youths getting captured. Anyway, it pays dividends here. So when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. They had a little escape hatch, kind of a hidden exit uh, through the king's garden between the two walls. And Ezekiel prophesied about it. The prophets knew it was there. The Babylonians knew it was there. Eventually. He went out toward the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They seized him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah. At Riblah. In the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. By the way, Riblah is very close to Anathoth. And some of the judgment that takes place takes place uh, in Jeremiah's uh, home turf. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. And the king of Babylon also slew all the nobles of Judah. See, those that, that were taken here are executed of the nobles. The, those that were already taken into captivity, that was God's grace. God's grace was to take Daniel in the first wave. God's grace was to take Ezekiel in the second wave. God in His grace was preparing the remnant before the judgment hit. 
And, uh, and they had it upside down and backwards. The people that were left in Jerusalem thought they were the chosen ones. Aren't we special? God's blessing us. We're not like those cursed captives that were taken away. And they had it exactly backwards. Those that were taken away were the ones getting rescued. The ones that were stayed there, they were the meat cooking in the pot. All right, Ezekiel preached that. That was his sermon. And so um, the Chaldeans also um, burned with fire the king's palace and the houses of the people, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem and uh, put out his eyes, blinded Zedekiah's eyes, bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon, took out, gouged out his eyes before it took him into captivity. Okay? And so all of this, we've got all of this coming up. All these things coming up. And in some cases, we have issues where God is so faithful and Zedekiah doesn't see it. Zedekiah thinks that God's a liar. Zedekiah thinks that all the prophets are a bunch of phonies because Jeremiah is telling him one thing and Hananiah is telling him something else. And there's a whole batch of false prophets that are in cahoots with one another to, to, to blow sunshine and to, to give happy messages to the king. All right. And Jeremiah is given the opposite message, saying, no. And here's these false prophets saying, you'll never see Babylon. And Jeremiah says, you're going to die in Babylon. And they're actually both true. He's going to die in Babylon, but he'll never see it. God even fulfills the lies of the false prophets. The false prophets were saying, you're never going to see Babylon. They were lying when they said that. But God fulfilled their lies when he puts out Zedekiah's eyes so he never sees Babylon. The last thing he sees is his sons murdered before him. And then he's blinded and he's taken to Babylon where he dies and never sees it. Okay? Oh, there's so much in this. Interesting how Judah is going to hate Jeremiah's message. But God has crafted Jeremiah for this very purpose. That's why as pastors, we don't fear people. God has gifted us. He's given us the the gift of pastor-teacher. He's equipped us. He's placed us in ministry. We better fear the Lord more than we fear man. We better understand, hey, who made the mouth? You know, Moses would complain about it. Well, who made your mouth, Moses? Okay. Or any servant. There's a long list of servants that didn't feel worthy to the task. Servants that figured they were better off dead. Servants that uh, even tried to kill themselves. I think Jonah was attempting suicide when they wanted him to throw him overboard. God thwarted that. Jeremiah is going to want to die. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. Judah is going to hate Jeremiah's message, but God has crafted Jeremiah for this very purpose. Let me tell you something. We may encounter some conflict here, and I expect we will. I believe Jeremiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah is equipping this congregation for dark days ahead. And that's going to fly in the face of a lot of pop trendy uh, um, evangelical Christendom. All right. That thinks everything is just marvelous and wonderful and getting better. I don't believe it is. I believe it's getting worse. And I wonder at uh, evangelicalism when I see poll results. And I see a split evangelical vote and I say, what splits that vote? And I wonder, what are churches teaching anymore? What's happening? So I think this is going to be a, a vital message for us moving forward. All right, well, there's the end of the chapter.
he accepts his assignment because the word of the Lord is going to come to him in chapter 2 and he's going to go preach in Jerusalem. And uh, we'll be discussing the, uh, those issues there next week. I think the last thing I want to highlight, and, I, and I'll back up a couple slides because I went way too fast through this. The, uh, the prophet to the nations, the international ministry. Pay attention to, to Jeremiah 25. Verses 15 through 29. Let me grab that and then we'll, we'll dismiss. And then uh, chapter 46 through chapter 51. That's 46.1 through 51.64. Those chapters are all international, dealing with all the nations surrounding Judah. But in chapter 25, he takes a journey. And I used to wonder, was this spiritual? Did he do this in a vision? Did he do this... In a, in a, in a, in a, you know, did he travel like Ezekiel through time and space, or did he literally go to these places? Did he teleport? Was he like, uh, you know, was he like Elijah and teleporting from place to place? How did he get to these places and make these kings drink? And so, uh, if you pull up the old through the Bible notebook, you'll see some notes here where I pondered, you know, three different ways that this possibly could have been fulfilled. But in Jeremiah 25, uh, he commissions him here. And uh, in verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now there is a ton of prophecy in this. The golden cup of wrath comes up in, in Revelation. It's, it's the cup that is going to be drunk by, by religious Babylon and commercial Babylon in, in Revelation 18 Revelation 19. And there's a tremendous amount of eschatology and prophecy that goes into this. But just bringing it back now to the life of Jeremiah, and as it was first given, he was expected to take a cup and make them drink. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send against them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. How long did that take? Now, did he literally travel? Was it weeks and weeks that he was traveling by foot to get to these places? Did he teleport to these places? How did he get here? Starting with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Why? Because judgment begins at the house of the Lord, so start there. And it's kings and it's princes to make them a ruin, a horror, and a hissing curse as it is this day. Then go to Egypt, Pharaoh, king of Egypt his servants, his princes, and all his people. I couldn't imagine today starting at the White House and making Barack Obama drink a cup and then going to Canada and making whoever that guy is drink a cup and then going to Mexico and I don't even know who some of these guys are. Anyway, travel the world. Force them to drink this cup. And all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands. And every single one of these kings is terrified of the approach of Nebuchadnezzar. They ought to be terrified of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Because the prophet of, of Yahweh is preaching against them. Deden and Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair. All right. Anyway, we'll get, uh, we'll get to that in chapter 25. I like verse 27. Thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send against you. (laughs) Here's a fun sermon. Preach that one. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. I will make you drink and get drunk 
and vomit and fall and rise no more. Father, I thank you for this new book study. I thank you for the blessings we have. I thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah. And I ask that we too, in our day and age, our generation, Father, that we would be faithful as Jeremiah to be obedient to every call, to go forth where you send us, to speak what you give us to speak, and to fear you rather than man. Father, I pray that we would be humble before you. And as our nation grows into realms of darkness, Father, I pray that our light would shine brighter and brighter, that we would not flinch from declaring the whole counsel of the Word of God, from declaring what is right and what is true in your truth. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.